Hail brothers, this is Didact with a new domain query, and this one is Unleashed in the East. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime subscribers from the site. Very warm welcome to all of my subscribers from Podbean. Thank you very, very much for tuning in. And it's been a while since I've done one of these. It has been a while, of course, because first I was on vacation for two weeks, then I came back and I promptly fell sick for two weeks, then I've been traveling like crazy for two weeks. Uh, kind of overlapping with being sick, which was not fun. And uh, the last couple of weeks have just been absolutely nuts. So I, I think I got back September 11th, and then yeah, the two weeks after that, it was just like, I was, holy crap, things are so busy. Three weeks after that, really. Um, so the last five, six weeks have been a bit mad. Uh, the title of this week, uh, this domain query installment refers to for those of you who aren't metalheads and therefore do not have my incredibly erudite and sophisticated taste in music, uh, it refers to a Judas Priest live album, the classic Priest live album from way back in the day when they were touring with Les Binks. So this dates back to 1979, I think. Um, maybe a little earlier than that, in fact. So we're talking, you know, properly, properly old album. 45 years ago, at least. And uh, Priest went to Japan and did this amazing series of live shows, uh, which just blew the doors off the Japanese uh, audience and, 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 and market, and made them huge in Japan. This was off the back of the Stained Class album release, and I think uh, this was before they recorded Hellbent for Leather. Uh, and indeed, yes. It, it was, this was the, this was, this was after the first four albums that they released. So, uh, the problem is, of course, because Rob, Rob Halford can't really sing live. I mean, with very few exceptions, like the Ran It Down tour is, is a good example of one where he can, he could sing live and do a great job. Uh, absolutely phenomenal job. And then, of course, the Painkiller tour, he sounded like crap. Anyway, um, they actually re-recorded a lot of his vocals in the studio to compensate for the lack of his ability to hit the high notes. So it got the nickname Unleashed in the Studio, uh, and frankly, rightly so, because that's exactly what happened. So uh, at any rate, the, the title of this week's, or this domain query episode, is a reference to the questions, the two questions that I got from Longtime reader in front of the site, Randall E6, and he wrote in to me. He's, he's actually had uh, quite a bit of uh, success in his plans. I won't go into details about them, but he's doing well, which is great to see. So congratulations, my friend. It's really, really well done. And uh, you know, best of luck to you with your, your plans to, shall we say, move onwards and upwards. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, now... He has two questions here, uh, so he, I'll, I'll state his uh, questions you know, verbatim. Uh, the first question is pertinent to your recent vacation to Russia. The question is, have the Russians finally accepted, and in parentheses, we can hope, embrace the reality that they are Russian, not European, and not Asian? I do not mean this in the cruel sense of deriding the Russians as a barbaric race. Rather, I think of them as being the Far Eastern analog to Texas, just bigger, colder, and to be blunt, possessed of questionable cuisine. Uh, in question, in parentheses, all hail the true, truly homegrown American cuisines, Cajun and Tex-Mex. Over here in the USA, 
Texas has never been ashamed of being Texas. It readily accepts the fact that it's it is its uh, it it is its not with an apostrophe. It shouldn't be own little all right big reality that doesn't quite play by the rules as the American South, Southwest, and Appalachia know them. But Russian history doesn't play out that way. It's never a good sign when your nobility can speak better French than Russian. And you keep doing it despite the frogs shitting on you whenever they see you. Ditto for the rest of Western Europe with regards to Russia. Okay, that's a good first question and uh, good exposition. And then we get to the second question. So the second question relates to China. Simply put, the Chinese have done something they have never done since before the birth of Christ. That something being the alteration of their own of their government. From the time of the first emperor to the nomadic conquerors from over the wall, the Chinese governmental model has stood firm, the only changes to it essentially being window dressing. Those days are now gone, and in the place of the old dynasty stands the CCP, which should be renamed the fascist Chinese party, if we are honest. The CCP has a problem, a threat it cannot answer like the old dynasties did. That thorn in their side being the question of legitimacy. In the two millennia of millennium, millennia should should read of dynastic rule, all an emperor had to do to remain legitimate was to keep China prosperous and stable. So long as he could do this, the emperor was legitimate, regardless of whatever bullshit his predecessors had cooked up. However, the CCP cannot partake of this mandate of heaven like the dynasties did. The CCP is built around ideology, not an emperor. And just because Deng took over from Mao does not mean the former can abjure the latter as having lost the mandate of heaven, the ideological tenets of the CCP being absolute and absolute commandments, uh, being absolute commandments that cannot be challenged formally, lest the foundations of the entire party crumble. Simply put, the CCP cannot come to terms with the fact that they are no longer communists. They are fascists. Hence, such euphemisms as communism with Chinese characteristics. What does this force the party, what this does is force the party to live in a state of cognitive and political dissonance, a damaging state for both the individual and the party itself. With that in mind, do you think the CCP can overcome this internal contradiction? So rather a lengthy question there, and I think one worth exploring in some detail. Um, I would push back a bit on a number of the sort of assumptions in that one, but let's answer the first one, um, you know, first, let's be novel about it and do it in order. Uh, with respect to the first question about whether Russians have embraced their identity, the simple answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind about this. And having come back from Russia, I can say this with complete confidence. Uh, having seen what I've seen of not just Moscow and St. Petersburg and Voronezh um, and Ivanovo and uh, yeah, basically those places, I can say... I mean, that's that's Western Russia. That's the most sort of westernized part of Russia. I can say with absolute confidence, the westernized part of Russia is, of course, Europeanized to a very high degree. And Moscow is probably the most Europeanized of all of the Russian cities. But even there, what you're going to find is today a very, very strongly patriotic movement, and certainly that's what I witnessed when I was there. Uh, Russians are comfortable being Russians, and they no longer see the need to be anything else for the time being. And the reason this is of such vital importance to understand is because 
of the very severe identity crisis the Russians suffered uh, up until, well, basically between 1991 and about, I would say about 2010, uh, for those 20 odd years, the Russian people really grappled very hard with who they were. And even until, even from 2010 to about 2022, the Russian people really had this deep inferiority complex about um, sort of their position in the world vis-a-vis -vis Europe and the United States. They felt that their economic model had collapsed and their sense of identity was gone. Putin sing almost single-handedly came along to restore that. Now, not completely, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail as to why that is. My view is... Ultimately, the Russian army is what saved Russia. I mean, Putin, don't get me wrong, Putin was the focal point of it all, and he will go down in history as the greatest Russian ruler, I believe, firmly believe, the greatest of all time. Greater than Stalin, greater than Peter the Great, greater than Catherine the Great. Uh, right up there with, you know, in, in the hearts and minds of the Russian people with uh, Alexander Nevsky as sort of the founder of the modern Russian state. Uh, I firmly believe this. I mean, a lot of Russians will disagree and say, well, you know, Stalin was greater because he took, well, yeah, whatever. Stalin, Yosef Jugashvili, was not a native Russian. He was not ethnically Russian. Putin is born and raised in what back then was Leningrad, and today is St. Petersburg. He is Russian. He is of the Russian soil. He is of the Ruski Narod, the Russian people. So if you look at Russia today and how the Russian people themselves feel about themselves, view themselves, uh, if you look at my Telegram channel, there's a very, very good poll and it's buried about 10 fathoms deep, unfortunately, because I, I forward something like, I don't know, um, 150 to 200 posts a day uh, in Telegram. But if you look at the poll from, oh, I don't know, a few days back, I think, what you will see is uh, in, in, in the chat history, you will see a poll of the countries that Russians consider to be great. Um, and that poll shows the changes over time. Uh, between various snapshots in time of Russian views of themselves and other countries. And I can't quite remember when it was, it was some days ago, but if you look at the actual poll data, what you will see is uh, through time, the, the Russians viewed the United States, back in 19, sort of mid-1990s, the Russians, a very small number of Russians, relatively speaking, viewed their country as great. And China wasn't even on the map. And the country that most Russians admired more than any other was the USA. And that's not surprising because it seemed as though the USA had the greatest culture, the greatest um, kind of... Uh, economy, the greatest uh, sort of economic model and engine in the world. 
but over time, that changed very quickly. And it became very clear, particularly in the last couple of years, that in fact, the United States is an empty shell. It's, it's a collapsing empire. And the Russian people see this. They understand it. They no longer admire the United States. Uh, they, they really do think of the U.S. as a degenerate, collapsing uh, cesspit of stupidity and nonsense. And it's really quite sad. It's, it, it's, it's genuinely quite uh, pathetic to see how quickly the United States has collapsed in, in terms of its military and its economy. And the Russians recognize that they're not, they're not stupid people, not at all. They fully understand uh, how problematic the United States has become, how evil it's become. And so they don't want to emulate that anymore. Now, the Russians at the beginning of Putin's time in office really tried very hard to become part of the European world. I mean, Putin, if you look at his speeches and his statements from throughout his career, and I, I've read quite a few of his speeches, not all of them, especially not the earlier ones, but I've read quite a few of his speeches, both to some extent in the original Russian and the English translations. Uh, there's a book in my Kindle library called The Putin Plan. Uh, and it basically is a, a collection of um, kind of speeches that he gave uh, over the time in over his time in office. And it, it's obviously quite heavy in terms of the most recent speeches. It doesn't really go into some of the speeches that he gave in the past. But if you actually look at what he said in sort of the late, the very late 1990s, the early 2000s, Putin was talking about a greater Europa stretching from, you know, the shores of the Mediterranean all the way to Vladivostok uh, in the east and beyond. He was talking about uh, a Europe so vast that it encompassed all of the territory of Russia. And he was talking about a Euro common European identity. And in this respect, he was just continuing the policies of Peter the Great. And as Randall E. Six pointed out in his email, the Russian royalty back in the day actually spoke French. They didn't speak Russian. The language of the courts across Europe and including in Russia, the language of the elites was French. Russian, in fact, modern Russian as we understand it, is not a courtly language, it's an academic language. It was the, the, all the rules and sort of weirdness of modern Russian is a relatively recent, relatively recent imposition onto the language. And it comes from a very academic approach to language, which is why it's so heavily rules-based, whereas French is so illogical because it's a language of courts and diplomacy. And there's much more touchy-feely in that respect. So that remained the situation up until the Russian Revolution in 1917. And obviously Lenin and then Stalin completely changed things and moved to a fully Russianized system of education, which they spread throughout the Soviet Union, to the point where, if, like, when I went to Kyrgyzstan, I could see the use of Cyrillic everywhere. The Kyrgyz, to my knowledge, don't have a native script, I don't think. I could easily be wrong about that. I'm happy to be corrected. 
but all of the road signs that I saw were in Cyrillic. And because I can read Russian, I could read perfectly well what they, uh, what they had written. Now, to someone who's trained to speak Russian, it doesn't make any sense. I'm looking at the, the, the road signs going like, what the hell? The, that, that breaks every single rule. Like, I read a, a sign in, in Kyrgyz and I'm like, what, what, how did, I, I can't even say that because it's wrong. It, like, it breaks all the rules of letter placement in Russian. But then they have the Russian transliteration underneath it. And I'm like, okay, fine. Now I get it. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is that the Russian people are really incredibly diverse. And yet they all consider themselves to be Russian. They have a firm identity of who they are. And that identity is very, very clearly Russian. There's a really cute video uh, from oh, 16 months ago, I think. Somewhere in the chat channel uh, in, on, on Didactic Mind, which talks about, uh, which it, it shows a little uh, Buryat girl, and uh, her mother is asking her, her daughter, uh, What are you? Are you a Russian or a Buryat? And the girl is very adamant. She says, Ya Buryat, Ya Ruskaya, Ya Ruskaya. And the mother says, No, aren't you a Buryat? She says, Nyet, Ya Ruskaya. I'm Russian. Um, she's very, she really gets very indignant and worked up about it. It's very, very cute, very heartwarming. But that is the truth of Russia. That's something like 170 different ethnicities and nationalities. If you look at all of the various republics and uh, states and, and kind of autonomous regions within Russia, they're all so diverse. It's one of the most diverse countries on earth. And yet every single one of them pretty much views himself or herself as Russian. It doesn't matter if you're a Chechen, an Ingush, an Avar, a, you know, um, what else, uh, of Moldovan or Ukrainian or Romanian or uh, Armenian origin living in Russia. It doesn't matter if you're a Buryat, a Tuvan. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Yakut, it doesn't matter if you're a Bashkir, it doesn't matter if you're from, uh, if you do, it doesn't matter if you're a Tatar, it doesn't matter if you're from Sakhalin, it doesn't matter if you're from Perm or Tula or, uh, or Sverdlovsk, it, does, it just, it doesn't matter. They all speak of them. It, does, it doesn't matter if you're from Kaliningrad, they all think of themselves as Russian. And again, you have to go back to Putin's speeches from about... I was listening to Scott Ritter on Cyril Jans, Cyrus Janssen's show just now, in fact. Scott Ritter talks about this. And he talked about a speech Putin made in 2005 before the Federal Assembly. Uh, their equivalent, the Russian equivalent of a joint session of Congress. In which Putin said, I am the president of the Russian people. And my duty is to defend the Russian people. And in that, he gave... He gave a very deep insight into how he thinks of Russia. Putin does not consider Russia to be confined to the physical borders of Russia. He is of the view that those people who are Russian by birth and by blood, by language, culture, history, faith, are Russian no matter where they live. So he considers the, Russia, the ethnic Russians living in the Baltic states, for example, to be Russian. He considers the ethnic Russians who fled to East Germany to be Russian. And now a number of those East German Russians are trying to go back 
they're, they're desperately trying to leave Germany, which is deindustrializing, and go back to Russia, which is really where they belong. He considers the ethnic Russians living in all of eastern Ukraine to be Russian. So as far as he's concerned, his duty is to those people. And he said very clearly a number of times, Russia is a civilization state, especially of late. He said that very clearly. And that is indeed how the Russians see themselves. They now see themselves as an independent entity that will determine their own destiny. They do not look with envy or fear at the West anymore. They look with utter contempt at the West. They Genuinely, I mean, that's the major thing that's changed since the last time I was in Russia. When, when I went this time and I talked to my Russian contacts, they were like, you know, these Western people, they're crazy. I mean, we just want to be left alone. We want to live in peace. We don't want this war. It's a tragedy that we have this war, but if you're going to force us to fight, we will fight and we'll fight to the end. If only you would have left us in peace. That's, that's really their, their, their spirit and their, and their approach uh, to things. So what you're seeing now is a, a reawakening of Russian national pride and national spirit. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a very, very good thing. I am not at all against it. Uh, I think, I mean, I'm a nationalist by nature, right? I, I am a firm Christian nationalist. And that means, as far as I'm concerned, God loves the nations. He says as much in the Bible many times. And the nations are a good thing. So it is good for Russia to rediscover its sense of self. I will disagree with Randall E6 about the cuisine. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, Russian cuisine is incredibly varied. And if you go to, for example, St. Petersburg and you eat uh, seafood there, it's, it, I mean, it's got a quality to it that's completely different from, uh, let's say, uh, food in this, the northern Caucasus. Uh, I've eaten Dagestani cuisine. It's absolutely wonderful. Loved it. I thought it was fantastic. If you go to the shores of Lake Baikal, they have a completely different cuisine there. I mean, Siberia, you look at what that's like. It's, it's incredibly varied across all of Russia. And that is the result of the melding of two millennia of migration and, and, and movement and culture and peoples. So, you know, I, I cannot say Russian cuisine is bad. It's not. It's not bland either. It's actually quite varied. And the most important thing is Russian cuisine actually tastes really good because in Russia, they do not allow GMO products into their food supply. And they really cut down very hard on the use of artificial sweeteners and other such chemical junk in the food. So it really tastes good. I mean, even the simplest foods taste really good. You actually taste the food. So, you know, I... They do not have a questionable cuisine. They have an excellent cuisine. Um, the Russians are no longer ashamed of themselves. They no longer see themselves as inferior. They see themselves as uh, a rising great, a, a returning actually great power. And they're proud of themselves and they should be. And they should be treated with respect and deference for their great power status, which never went away. It's just that the Russian people suffered terrible setbacks before they regained their sense of pride and their sense of self. And I want to talk briefly here about the Russian military, the Russian army. If you look throughout history at the organization that has done the most to save Russia from itself, it's always been the Russian army, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. 
if you look at the times of weakness and crisis when Russia was confronted with uh, serious internal structural failure, it was the Russian army that took things in charge and set them right again. And recent history really proves that out. 1991, tanks shelled the, um, the, the sort of government headquarters in Moscow, and Yeltsin worked with the Russian army to stop the communists from exercising a coup. And the Russian army supported Yeltsin for a while until he proved to be a drunk, a corrupt, weak, feeble, old fool, frankly. Then in 1999, when Yeltsin did absolutely nothing to stop the NATO bombing of Serbia, the Russian army, the Russian military, covertly sent units into uh, Pristina in Kosovo, uh, part of Serbia at the time, now an unrecognized so-called independent republic, and had them stand on, you know, on, on a, in the way, basically, directly in the way, intervening, uh, without orders. I mean, this was not something Yeltsin authorized, but the, the Russian military basically took it upon themselves to disobey Yeltsin and do what was necessary to save Russian interests in the region. Then again, when Yeltsin finally kind of recognized the jig was up and turned to Putin to take over, Putin waged a covert war against the oligarchs. And the only reason he could get away with it, because he didn't want the job originally, Putin did not want to be president of Russia. Uh, he turned it down. He said, I, it's too big. I, I can't do it. And uh, Yeltsin said, you're the only one who can, because I look around me and everyone else is corrupt. You're the only man here who is not tainted by corruption. The army backed Putin all the way to the hilt. And it has always been the army that turned around and saved Russia. Um, when Putin launched his war against the oligarchs, it was the FSB and the military that backed him up and gave him the resources necessary to squeeze the oligarchs dry and send them packing. Today, you know, most recently, it was the Russian military that stood down Wagner and like faced them down and, and really sort of basically made them blink during the, the coup attempt, the, the mutiny in July, uh, June. And it, and it is the Russian military that is now like building up to the point where it will just roll over Ukraine in this massive tidal wave of death and destruction that will wipe out whatever is left. It is the Russian military that, that kind of glues Russia together. And don't underestimate the power of that military. Don't underestimate the influence of that force within Russian domestic life and thinking. The Russians don't, the Russians are not a militaristic people, actually. For all that they've been fighting wars for the last thousand years to preserve the survival of their state, they're not a militaristic or warlike people. They understand what war is. They hate war. They truly hate war. The, the memory of the great patriotic war, Velika Otechestvenaya Voyna, as they call it, uh, is, uh, deeply ingrained in the soul of every single Russian alive today. Every single one understands the price that Russia paid, the Soviet Union paid, and Russia really disproportionately paid during that war. They've never forgotten it, and they will never allow their descendants to forget it either, which is why you've got the you know, March of the Immortal Regiment and all that. 
So it is the Russian military that really glues society together, but in a very invisible and yet powerful way. So don't ever underestimate the, the power of that force. So on to the next question about the CCP. Now, um, there's a lot of interest. There are a lot of interesting strands to kind of pull apart here about the way the CCP or the CPC, as I call them, which is actually the correct name, uh, manages China. I do need to push back on a few points here, and I don't agree with them, uh, to put it very frankly. It is, Randall E. Six, first of all, is right. China is a fascist country today, and I want people listening to strip away the emotional baggage associated with the term fascist and understand what fascist actually means. It simply means complete state control over factors of production, but they allow private enterprise to thrive and flourish on the back of that state control. So you use market mechanisms to align factors of production, but the ultimate owner of those factors is the Chinese state or you know, the state in general. Well, that is fascism. And fascism is all about dividing people along the lines of nationality. Well, that's what China does. It considers China, the Han Chinese, to be a distinct national identity. And that's exactly how they run the country. So, again, understand I'm not trying to be emotionally loaded when I say this, but it is the truth. Fascism is a more workable system than communism. The whole system of communism is a failure. It's always been a failure. It doesn't work because it doesn't make sense. Fascism is more workable simply because it aligns more closely with the realities of human action than communism does. That doesn't make it a good system. It just makes it a less bad system. Okay. Now, I think it is undisputable, uh, indisputable. It is indisputable that China is a fascist country at this time. Again, not being emotive about it. I'm just pointing out the facts. Because if you look at how they structure their economy, that is the reality of China. State control over everything, but lots of free enterprises doing whatever they need to do as long as they uh, acknowledge the land, the resources, everything else are owned by the state. <clears throat> so that's true. The CPC, it is actually the Communist Party of China, not the CCP. That is a Western term for the government. The CPC does have much greater party representation among the ordinary people than most realize. The total membership of the CPC is in the, in the tens of millions. Uh, if you look at uh, total membership of CPC, you're going to realize very quickly that according to the, the, the Global Times, for example, and according to what China itself says, in June 2021, the CPC had a total membership of 95 million people. 95 million. So the CPC is more representative of its people than any other political party on earth as a proportion of the overall population. That's a fact. If you look at the total number, the total membership, for example, of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Conservative Party in the UK or the Labour Party, you will find that as a proportion of the population, it's nowhere near as close. It's nothing like as much. I mean, card-carrying members of the party. I'm not talking about 
party members who identify or are registered as Republican voters, for example, in the United States, or Democrat voters, I'm talking about actual members of the party. That's a different story. The CPC has far greater proportional membership than any other Western democracy anywhere. So that is the basis by which it claims legitimacy. It has popular representation. That is a fact. Now, what about this question of dynastic legitimacy? Well, okay, that's fair. Uh, It is true that uh, political power in China for a better part of more than 3,000 years, really, followed dynastic succession. And indeed, you can go back to 5,000 years and, and find examples of kingdoms throughout China. The, the Zhou, the, the Han, the Tang, the Song, the, you know, the, the, the Yuan, the, the Qing, the, the Ming, the Qing, and, and it all ended with the Qing, obviously, and so on and so forth. I mean, you can find dynastic succession through blood, through lineage. But actually, I push back on the contention that um, China, like the the current CPC does not have dynastic succession. That's true. But I push back on the idea that it lacks the mandate of heaven. It lacks legitimacy. Um, I don't view Chinese history like that. I view it as broadly a continuum interrupted by the communist revolution uh, from about uh, 1920-23 to about 1973, so that 50-year period. And why is that? Um, it's, it's actually later than that because obviously Sun Yat-sen and, and um, what's his name, Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen were in charge up until I think 1927. But anyway, um, ancient history. When Mao came to power, he deliberately set about destroying the old structures of China and he very nearly succeeded, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, the Great Leap Backward and the Cultural Devolution were disastrous episodes in Chinese history. I, I mean, China has still, to this day, never recovered from them. But he didn't succeed entirely. And all that's happened is the CPC has rearranged itself into a new form that is, pays lip service to communism, but is really essentially a an organism that, that fosters dynastic succession. If you, if you stop thinking of individual leaders as members of a blood dynasty and start thinking of the CPC as a dynasty in and of itself that simply chooses different mandarins from within its own ranks, then it makes complete sense. All you're seeing is another episode of dynastic succession where Previously, the Qing dynasty fell, and then there was an interregnum period, and now you've got the CPC in charge. And then they had to sort out some of their own internal issues with Mao and Deng. But today, you have effectively an emperor in charge. You have Xi Jinping. He is the new Huangdi, as I call him, the new Mandarin. And the thing that motivates Xi Jinping every day when he wakes up is How the hell am I going to run a country of 1.4 billion people? How am I going to keep it growing? How am I going to keep it prosperous? This is a huge headache for him. And it is, this is the reason why Xi Jinping has adopted uh, that, a very different approach from some of his predecessors. 
the thing to keep in mind is Xi Jinping came to power off the back of an internecine power struggle between the Beijing faction and the Shanghai faction. And the, um, the Shanghai faction, I believe, was led by Jiang Zemin. The, he, he died recently. And the Beijing faction was sort of the more of the old Deng-affiliated uh, party. Uh, the, the, the Jiang faction was more about business and globalization and, and kind of trade. The Beijing faction was more about resurrecting China as a powerful country. The two clashed quite frequently, and that is the reason why when um, uh, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao were in power, China didn't really rock the boat, didn't really move anywhere, didn't do much of anything. It was kind of anodyne in most of its foreign policy decisions, and its domestic economy just sort of hummed along. But really, they just adopted Deng Xiaoping's economic policies and carried them forward. So if you look at Wen Jiabao and Hu Jintao as kind of just relatively bland and boring mandarins within a chain of dynastic succession, then it makes complete sense. Then you get Xi Jinping who comes to power. Now, she, she is a man almost universally acknowledged by anyone outside of the West to be perhaps the smartest, most intelligent politician alive today. That's not my opinion. That is the opinion of uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the, the founder of modern Singapore, basically. That's what he called him. I mean, you look at what happened in Xi's life. He, he went into exile with his family into basically a cave, political exile, and from that clawed his way all the way back to the top of the pinnacle of power in the world's most powerful manufacturing economy. That is an incredible achievement, and he did that. So if you're looking at, you know, um, if you're looking at the way that the CPC manages the country, and you're looking at the, the state institutions that exist in China today, from a macro lens, it's essentially the same as what existed in, in dynastic China. Um, if you look at the top ranks of all of the CPC, they're all engineers, they're all scientists, they all have a scientific background, every single one of them except uh, Wang Yi, who has a, I mean, he went to, you know, the foreign relations school, but Hu Jintao, uh, damn it, Xi Jinping has uh, an engineering background, as do all of his top lieutenants, they're all engineers, and as a result, they see the world as essentially a series of engineering problems to solve, which is why when trying to rule a country as big as China, they embark on massive engineering projects to do it. So uh, while Randall E6 is, in my opinion, wrong that the CPC has lost the mandate of heaven or is not dynastic in nature, it actually is, both from an external and an internal point of view. Uh, he is right that there are internal contradictions in China. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, China has serious, really serious social and economic problems. I mean, they, they will eventually cripple China. And I want to make it very clear throughout all of this. I am not pro-Chinese at all. I do not like China. I do not trust the Chinese. I have worked alongside Chinese people for much of my life. I have interacted with them. I've been to China, and this was 22 years ago. Um, I have seen China up close and personal. Uh, 
I do not like the Chinese government. I do not like the way they do things. I would never, ever want to live in China personally. But I can respect them. I understand that while they are a low-trust people, which they are, uh, they have many splendid qualities. I just wouldn't want to deal with them on a contractual basis because they will do everything possible to screw you. Once the contract is signed, they will find every possible loophole to avoid paying you or to avoid giving you the product that you specified or the quality you specified. But, you know, ultimately, once you understand they're out, they're in it to make money and they really just want to get rich, then you can kind of deal with the Chinese on their own terms. Um, and it, you can sort of appreciate them for who they are. And they do have a great culture. I mean, I'm not knocking them in any way. I do respect and appreciate Chinese culture, but I would never want to live there. Uh, I would never, ever want to live under their system, especially after what they did to their own people under COVID. So how does the Chinese leadership manage these contradictions? Well, again, they approach it with an engineer's mindset. They think everything is a problem to be solved, and that's not the best way to do it. Uh, sometimes you just have situations which can only be improved. Sometimes everything in front of you is a bad, bad situation. And every choice is bad. You just have to choose the least worst option and see what happens. But the Chinese leadership doesn't really think that way. Now, how, how will they resolve these contradictions in future? They will continue to try to build out China's economy. They will uh, try to secure China's supply lines of natural resources, which are cr critically important to them. Their current main supply artery is through the Straits of Malacca, uh, going all the way to Africa. Um, shipping stuff overland is, has always been much more expensive than shipping it over the sea. So, you know, China does not or did not want to build out its road infrastructure until relatively recently with the Belt and Road Initiative. But now they understand the U.S. Navy pres presents an existential threat to China. So they are rebuilding kind of their, their BRI links all the way to Europe, across Russia, and Russia and China will eventually form the core of a new economic engine where China is the manufacturing superpower and Russia is the resources superpower that provides the military muscle necessary to defend that superpower against all other rivals, primarily the United States, which is increasingly unhinged and crazy. I mean, there's nothing rational about American foreign policy. Nothing. There's nothing useful or good about Western foreign policy right now. It's all leading to war. Whereas if you look at the rest of the world, really, the rest of the world just wants to be left alone to get rich, however they see fit. And you can disagree or agree with various Western, uh, non-Western regimes. You don't have to like the Venezuelan uh, government. I really don't. But if they want to live in a socialist hellhole, hey, that's up to them. Let them develop at their own pace. The same with the Cubans. They want to live as under communist rule, fine. But let them enter into their own trade deals with the Chinese and the Russians. Well, you know, what's it to America? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just the American way of thinking about the world is really stupid. I mean, I say this as somebody who likes Americans. Americans have an unbelievably dumb approach to dealing with the rest of the world. They, they think of everything in terms of alliances, and if you're not with us, you're against us. What a retarded way of thinking. Like, seriously, it's so binary. It's so stupid. The way the Russians and the Chinese think instead is in terms of mutually agreeable friendships. 
It's the way the Indians and the Chinese think of each other. You listen to Jash, uh, Subramanian Jaishankar. Is that his name? Something Jaishankar. The, Dr. Jaishankar, the, the foreign minister of India. Really good diplomat. And he says, in dealing with China, yes, I've got problems with the Chinese. I can sort them out myself without American intervention. We can deal with it ourselves. And he's right. They can. There's no need for foreign intervention. Now, will China deal with its internal contradiction of an aging population that will get old before it gets rich? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, it has a serious problem with its internal population. It has serious problems with water. It has really serious problems with debt and ghost cities. It has problems with an unbalanced economy. And it has problems with resources. None of these problems are necessarily fatal. But they will result in a greatly reduced Chinese economy in the future. As the population starts shrinking from sort of 2050 onwards, that's a problem for basically another ruler to deal with. But Xi Jinping right now is simply interested in keeping his resource lines open and keeping the Chinese people reasonably prosperous and reasonably well-fed. And I think in that respect, at least for now, he's succeeding. He secured his resource supply lines with his uh, deep, his deepening friendship with President Putin and his ever greater trade flows with Russia. I mean, the Russians are sending biblical volumes of oil and natural gas and timber and food and coal and iron and aluminium and et cetera, et cetera, all to China, um, who are going to get rich off of that. And the Russians are going to get rich off of the trade that they do with China itself. Uh, the Chinese military is in no shape to fight. I mean, they've got a giant military, yes, but they don't know what to do with it. Uh, it's never been battle tested. And the Chinese PLA, PLA, well, the PLA actually has a very terrible historical record. Uh, the Chinese don't want war. They don't really want, they, they really don't want to go to war. They don't want to send in their ships out to fight against the American Navy. They don't want to sacrifice tens of thousands of their young boys invading Taiwan. They just don't. They simply want to get rich. That's it. And that's how they resolve these internal contradictions. But ultimately, the CPC will be subject to the same sort of internal entropy and decay that all Chinese dynasties have been. Eventually, it will be replaced by something different. Um, I think we'll all be safely dead by then uh, because the CPC, again, derives its power from the people and the membership of the people within the, the CPC drives its legitimacy. That isn't gonna change anytime soon. It's only gonna start changing once the Chinese population really starts to shrink. And that's not gonna be for some decades yet. So I hope I answered those two questions uh, reasonably well. Uh, as I said, you know, to summarize, yes, Russia has rediscovered its national identity. Russia is Russian. It doesn't wanna be European, it doesn't wanna be Asian, it just wants to be Russian. And uh, yes, the CPC can figure out uh, how to maintain its own internal dynastic succession uh, because they are, they are actually effectively a dynasty in a long chain of Chinese dynasties. And all of the, the same state structures of power are there in place the same way they were during the Ming, Tang, Song, you know, Han etc. dynasties. They're all the same. They're all there, just in somewhat different forms with different flavors. Yeah, that's, that's about uh, what I can say about that. 
So thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate uh, your time. I hope you derive some value out of this podcast. Please remember to hit the like button if you enjoyed this. Uh, Comment, share, and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Check out the links in the description box for subscriptions to Surfshark and Atlas VPN. Get yourself some useful things from my Amazon links uh, or from uh, the various other affiliates that I've got listed down there. And uh, yeah, I mean, help help support the channel. Um, I may eventually get on to buy me a coffee or something so I can at least make some money out of this. Uh, But if you do find value in my work, I mean, by all means, spread it around and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. I hope to have a new uh, Didactic Mind podcast episode up sometime soon. Thank you very much. Strengthen our brothers. Didact out.